The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Well, let's begin, before we get into God's Word this morning, let's begin with a word of prayer, silent prayer, to make sure that we are in fellowship. Use of 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then we are filled with the Holy Spirit who uh, dwells and fills us so that we can understand God's Word, see how it applies to our lives, and have the objectivity that comes with that. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we do thank you for the privilege we have, the freedoms that we have, which enable us to, to come together as a body of believers, to worship you and to study your word and to uh, worship you throughout our, our daily lives. And Father, these freedoms that we have now uh, may not last much longer if we continue down the path that this uh, nation, the leadership, has, has set us on, and we pray that you would... Uh, Give us the capacity through, through doctrine to handle whatever crises may come, whatever situations may come in the future, because the only hope for us as individuals and as a nation is, is your word. The, the spiritual solution is the ultimate and final solution, and on that we rest our total hope and confidence. Now, Father, as we look at your word this morning, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we are studying and to see how they relate to our own lives and our spiritual life so that we can advance spiritually toward the ultimate goal of spiritual maturity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, and we will continue our study. By way of review, we are in verse 4, and we are interacting with a false doctrine that has developed on the basis of a misinterpretation of Galatians 5.4. So I want to review that verse and point out a couple of details related to its exegesis and meaning, and then we will continue uh, with our study of the doctrine of eternal security. This verse reads, You have been severed from Christ. Now, the you is referring to the Galatians, and as we have seen in our study of Galatians, that these Galatians are continuously viewed by the Apostle Paul as believers. Galatians 3.3, 3, he says, you have, you begun, you have begun by, by uh, the Spirit. Are you now being matured by means of the flesh? And this is the essential problem, not only in Galatia, but throughout the history of Christianity is a failure to understand that the spiritual life in the church age is a unique spiritual life based upon the power of the filling of the Holy Spirit. And that's where Paul will conclude at the end of this particular chapter. So throughout this, this epistle, no matter how legalistic these Galatians have become, no matter how much they have uh, given themselves over to this false doctrine of the Judaizers that salvation is by uh, faith plus circumcision, that the spiritual life is based upon obedience to the Mosaic Law, Paul never calls into question their salvation or their relationship to God. And yet this verse, because of 
A misapplication is often cited by people who say that you can lose your salvation. When he says you have been severed from Christ, the Greek verb here that is translated severed is the aorist passive indicative of katargeo. K-A-T-A-R-G-E-O. Now, this is a compound word from the preposition kata, K-A-T-A, which intensifies the meaning, and the root verb, which is argeo. Now, argeo, if you go back into the classical Greek, the root root meaning used in Homer's Iliad, it meant inactive or inoperative. It also had the meaning in other classical Greek literature of useless, unserviceable, unused, incapable of action, or of live operation. In the New Testament, it has the idea of something being unemployed, inactive, idle, or in the moral sense of not accomplishing the good. Katargeo, the intensified meaning, has a sense of to condemn something to inactivity, to put it out of use, to destroy it, to make it of no effect, to nullify it, or to leave it idle. And this is the point here, that Christ has been cut off from serviceable use for these believers. Why? Not because they are no longer saved, but because they're no longer operating on the principle of grace. Grace means God does all the work, and man simply receives it. Man accepts it. Legalism, and this is the problem in Galatia, legalism and all religion emphasizes the fact that man does the work and and God is supposed to bless man because of what he has done. This is based upon man's approbation lust that he thinks that he can actually do something through ritual or through moral obedience that pleases God. He can gain God's approval through his own efforts. And the scripture says in Isaiah 65 that all our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. That man can do nothing to please God. Therefore, God had to do all of the work and man simply receives it by faith alone. The merit is not in man. The merit is in Christ. Faith itself is non-meritorious. The merit is in the cross in the work that Christ did on the cross. And we saw last time that historically several, uh, the, the issues have been divided up into the first group, which is, has their roots and usually called Arminian theology. Now, Arminian theology is named after a man by the name of James Arminius, who was a Dutch theologian in the late 1500s and early 1600s. He died about 1609. Now, in Arminian theology, you have the view that justification is the result of faith plus keeping yourself saved through your works. It is up to you to keep yourself saved. God did it all at the cross, but all He could do at the cross is the way one writer put it. God did all He could at the cross. Now, the rest is up to you. In Arminian theology, faith is meritorious. The merit is in faith. And this is because Arminianism is a system. 
And it was a system of theology. He was original. Arminius was originally trained under Beza, who was Calvin's successor at Geneva, and he reacted to the hyper-Calvinistic system that Beza developed. See, uh, Calvin was more moderate, but Beza, who was uh, his successor, systematized Calvinism a little further, and the system we now know as Calvinism is really a hyper-Calvinism and was developed by Beza. Well, Arminius reacted against the strong double predestination views of uh, Bezan Calvinism, and he developed a system, and its starting point is, and this is all, always interesting to, to look at the starting point, is his view of sin. Now, they, uh, Arminius would say man is depraved, but man is still basically, in some sense, neutral, and therefore he can do some good, and there is some merit in man, and the thing that has merit is his faith. So the merit is placed in the faith, it's not placed on Christ. Second interesting observation, there are many other things you can say about the Arminian system, and I don't want to get off sidetracked into a whole discussion of Arminianism and Calvinism, but the second interesting thing is that they had a heretical view of the atonement. Now this is something very few people will ever bring out. We believe that in a substitutionary atonement, when Scripture says God demonstrated His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, this is the uh, Greek preposition, huper, which is the preposition of substitution. It means Christ died as a substitute for us, that Jesus Christ on the cross paid the penalty for all of our sins. He was judged for our iniquities, the Scripture says, on the cross. Judged for our iniquities, again, it's the Greek preposition huper, which means substitutionary. He was judged as a substitute for us on the cross. Now, Arminius developed, and his follower, Hugo Grotius, developed a view of the atonement which has come to be called in church history the governmental, or Grotian, for Hugo Grotius, the governmental view of the atonement. The governmental view of the atonement said that God was required by his nature to satisfy his righteousness, so he sent his son to die on the cross. His righteousness was satisfied, and because Christ, God's governing righteousness was satisfied, he was then free to uh, save people. But Christ did not die as a substitute for man. Man is not forgiven. The penalty is not paid. They reject the idea that Christ paid the penalty for our sins, they simply say he suffered on our behalf, but he did not die as our substitute. He did not pay our penalty on the cross. So you see, you have to go back to their fundamental theological distinctions here. And Arminianism affected uh, John Wesley and all Wesleyan systems, which would be Methodism, holiness theology, and charismatic Pentecostal theology all have their roots in Arminian and Wesleyan theology. The problem with that is that it's ultimately they're saying that you can do something to lose your salvation, and if you can do something to lose your salvation, that at some point, no matter how abstract, how abstruse it may be in your theological system, you have to do something to be saved. And that ends up being a work salvation. It is not Christ alone, it is Christ plus your works. The second aberration comes out of Beeson Calvinism. And that is the idea that justification, while it is based on faith alone, they would say, 
The faith that saves is never alone. In other words, they backload. This is a front-loading of the gospel with works, and this is a backloading of the gospel with works. If it is true saving faith, they would say, then you will have works that are consistent with that faith. Question then, how do you define it? How do you differentiate between the moral works that any unbeliever can perform and the and the works that are the fruit of the Holy Spirit that are consistent with faith. How do you quantify works? How do you qualify these works? And they don't have an answer for that. And this is based upon, as was said here in Arminianism, you start with a view of the will that is purely neutral. They start off with the view of depravity. Instead of calling it total depravity, they call it total inability. That man is man can't even exercise positive volition. The sin nature has shut down everything so that every aspect of his being is depraved, and man is unable to even exercise positive volition. Therefore, if man is unable to do anything whatsoever in terms of even um, exercising positive volition, then God must do it all in terms of changing his will, uh, saving him, everything else. There are very, those are the two extremes, and the way they developed was in the theological uh, environment of Holland in the uh, late 16th century, early 17th century. It was primarily a Calvinistic, it was a state church system, it was an extreme Calvinism system, and when uh, uh, Arminius and his follower Derek von Kornhurt and a few others began to teach their system, it developed into a heresy trial, a major church synod was convened called the Synod of Dort, and the Arminian theologians came and they said, we believe these five points. Well, the Calvinists reacted. See, you always have this polarization going on in life between somebody going too far one way and then the reaction goes too far the other way. And so the Calvinists responded with their five points. That's where you get the five points of Calvinism, somewhat sometimes called tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, Christ died only for the elect, irresistible grace and the perseverance of the saints. Now, for many people, they think perseverance of the saints is the same as eternal security, and that's a false perception. In the Calvinistic system, in the hyper-Calvinistic system, perseverance of the saints identifies this system, that if you are truly saved and you have true faith, you will persevere in good works. Even though you may fail at times or even for a period of time, you will ultimately in your life you will, if you're saved here at X point, you will manifest a certain amount of fruit in your life and you will persevere and there will be spiritual advance to the point of death. And if you come to the end of your life and you die and you look back over your life and you can't see the fruit there, you can't see the works, and you are minus works, then you did not have saving faith. You might have believed that Jesus died for your sins, but if it was saving faith, then, and didn't produce works, then it was a counterfeit faith. The end result is that you can never have any assurance of salvation here. There is minus assurance. Same thing up here, minus assurance. You can never know if you are saved or if you're going to go to heaven. Salvation, therefore, is not a one-time event that takes place at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone. It becomes a process. And that is the ultimate problem in a number of theological systems is that they confuse the doctrines of the spiritual life, which is the process of spiritual growth, 
with salvation, which is a one-time event. At the moment you trust Christ as your Savior, at that instant in time, you are saved. It's not a process. It is not the result of continuing ritual. It is not the process of continuing obedience. That is not what gets you saved. What gets you saved is a one-shot decision that at one point in time, you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And the result of that is that God does about 40 different things in your life, which we are going to examine part of that under the doctrine of of eternal security. And when you understand the complexities of what God has done for you in salvation, then you will understand why it is impossible to lose your salvation. The problems that man faced because of his sin nature and because of the complexities of sin are so vast and so extensive that salvation cannot be performed simply by works, and it can't be be uh, maintained by works. It must be totally and exclusively the work of God. So let's continue our examination. Well, let's finish our our exegesis of Galatians 5, 4 first. You have been severed, that is, cut off, or you have, I think the best way to render that would be, you Galatian believers have been rendered incapable of action now, incapable of any spiritual growth from the source of Christ. Why? Because you're operating on legalism instead of on grace. And when you operate on legalism, you can't get anywhere in the spiritual life because the spiritual life is based exclusively on grace. You who are seeking, that is a process. Notice, it uses a present tense verb here. You are seeking to be justified. It's a present tense of dikaiao. You are seeking to be justified. And it indicates that they've made the same error that in the, of the Arminians and of the hyper-Calvinists. And that is that they are viewing salvation as a process and not as a one-time event. See, back in Galatians chapter 2, when we looked at the principle of justification by faith alone, the verb was an aorist tense, looking back to one point in time when they were saved. But now, he says, you who are severed from Christ, you're no longer looking to Christ alone for your salvation, you're looking to Christ plus works. You who are seeking, present tense, process concept of justification by law, you have fallen from grace. And the word there translated fallen is the word pipto. And pipto means to be set off course. It means to fall, to move away from something, or it was used as a nautical term, to be driven off course. In other words, they are no longer operating on the principle of grace. They are now operating on the principle of law. Grace here is not some status that you're in as a believer. It's not used that way in the Scripture. That's just some way that people have misread and misinterpreted this verse. They have departed from the course of grace. They're not now operating on the principle of law. And if you weren't here when we studied Galatians chapter 4, that was the whole issue in Galatians chapter 4. There, there Paul used the analogy of the free woman, the, the child of the free woman, Sarah, and that child was Isaac, versus the slave woman, Hagar, and her child, Ishmael. And he drew this distinction, one or the other. It's not both, not somewhere in the middle. You're either operating in freedom like the child of the free woman, Sarah, or you're over here operating like a slave as a child of the slave woman, Hagar. 
one or the other. And so what Paul is saying in this whole discussion is we have been set free, live on the basis of freedom, and if you're operating on the law, you're putting yourself back in the position of slavery. You're operating apart from Christ now. This is the realm of of grace as the principle of your life, and this is operating on law as the principle of the spiritual life. And if you're putting yourself back under law, you're not operating under grace, and so Christ is of no benefit to you. Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit is no, of no benefit to you. The issue is you have to return to grace, and recovery is always on the basis of 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And notice, just a little observation, keep going back to this verse because it's so crucial. Galatians 3.3, 3, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, that is, putting your faith and trust in Christ alone, the Holy Spirit regenerates you, part of seven saving ministries of God the Holy Spirit at the point of salvation. You are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Are you now trying to be matured? That is the spiritual life. Are you now trying to be matured by means of the flesh? And see, what they were doing is this is also considered the realm of the flesh, which is the sin nature. And so it's a very clear picture that the sin nature has as is the source of religious activity. Because what they are doing is not something that is immoral or irreligious. What they are doing is something that is very religious, following the Mosaic Law based upon a lot of ritual, and very moral. So Paul is condemning their morality and their religiosity because it, their, their relationship with God cannot never be based on the sin nature. And here we see a clear example in the Scripture of how the sin nature produces morality. Now, when we come to the end of the chapter, he's going to focus on the opposite, which is the immorality, the overt personal sins that is produced. And we see that religiosity and, and morality, as it's produced by the sin nature, is dead works or human good. According to Hebrews 6.1, it's called dead works. So there we see this contrast over and over again. As a believer, you're operating in one sphere or the other sphere. You're not operating in between. There's not this sort of gray area where you're a little bit spiritual and a little bit carnal. It's either one or the other. Over and over again in these three chapters or four chapters, we're going to see that Paul emphasizes one status or another status. Okay, last time we began our study of the doctrine of eternal security, and let's just review for those who weren't here. Begins point number one with a definition. Eternal security is defined as the work of God, which guarantees that God's free gift of salvation is eternal and cannot be lost. It is eternal and cannot be lost. God has given what God has given; He is not going to take back. God's free gift of salvation is eternal and cannot be lost, terminated, abrogated, nullified, or reversed. It cannot be lost terminated, abrogated, nullified, or reversed by any thought, act, or change of belief in the person saved. One more time. This is something for you to think about and meditate on during the week. It's the work of God which guarantees that God's free gift of salvation is eternal and cannot be lost, terminated, abrogated, nullified, or reversed by any thought, act, or change of belief in the person saved. Since man does nothing to earn or deserve the free gift of salvation, man, can, man does nothing in order to keep it. 
God does not take back what He gives. He's not an Indian giver. It's an eternal security, therefore, is an eternal, unbreakable relationship based on the integrity of God, not on the integrity of man. Point number two, God, the Father's purposes in salvation cannot be overridden. We learn from Romans 8, 29, and 30 that the group He originally foreknew is the same group He glorifies. He loses no one. So God keeps everyone. It's the same group all the way through. There's no one who's justified at some point and then lost. It's all the same group. Point number three, God the Father's omnipotence is more powerful than human attempts to negate salvation. When you say, I can do something to lose my salvation, you you are in effect saying, I can commit some sin that is more powerful than the omnipotence of God. God, we're told in Scripture, is able to keep the believer secure. We certainly can't do it. We're still sinners. Jude one twenty four says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. And John 10, 28 and 29 are two other key verses where we are told that not only Jesus holds us in his hand and no one can snatch us out of his hand, but God the Father holds us in his hand and no one can snatch us from his hand. Point number four, God is omniscient. That means that God knows all the knowable. God is eternal. Therefore, God has eternally known all of the knowable. He knows all of the knowable simultaneously because God is immutable and unchangeable. He does not add to or decrease His knowledge. He has always known everything. There is nothing that God has not known. There is nothing that you are going to do in your life that surprises God. You are not going to go out tomorrow and commit some heinous sin that God was not fully aware of billions and billions of eons ago. So you're not going to surprise God. You may shock yourself. You may appall yourself. You may shock your friends. Everybody you know may turn their back on you. But God the Father has always known that you are going to commit that sin, and He made the perfect provision for that at the cross when Jesus Christ paid the penalty for that sin. So God's omniscience is a tremendous source of of reliance for us. He knew every word we would ever, ever say. He knew every thought we would ever have. He knew our motives, our desires, our wishes. Nothing will ever surprise God. He is also omnipotent. That means He is able to do whatever is necessary to bring His plan to completion. So we saw that when you combine God's omniscience with His omnipotence, we see that God knows all the facts. So God was able to devise a perfect plan that is so great and vast and detailed that it included the solution to not only every sin you will ever commit, but every sin anyone in human history would ever commit. No sin surprises God. No sin was left undealt with. And no sin is too great for the plan of God. And to say or think that we can do something that jeopardizes our salvation is the height of human arrogance and blasphemy. Point number five. No one. Angelic or human can bring a charge or condemn those who are saved. No one, angelic or human, can bring a charge or or condemnation against those who are saved. Since Christ's death pays the penalty for all sin, every believer has the righteousness of Christ imputed to him on the basis of faith alone, so nothing can be charged against us. Because remember, the issue is not our own righteousness. The issue is not what we do or what we don't do. The issue is Christ's righteousness. We are saved because at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, God the Father imputes to your account, 
the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And God looks at His perfect righteousness and not our relative righteousness, our moral obedience, our intelligence, or any other factor. He looks exclusively at the righteousness of Christ, which is ours. And He says, I declare you just because of that righteousness. So we can't, therefore, do something unrighteous that changes that because the righteousness of Christ that's imputed to us is unchangeable. We can't lose that. That's the basis for our justification. Romans 8.33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Romans 8.33 and 34 for that point. Point number six, to think you can help God in your salvation, that God did what He could at the cross, and now it's up to us, is nothing more than raw arrogance. And that's the problem with all religious systems that emphasize works, is they are based on arrogance and they breed arrogant followers. And they breed self-righteousness in their followers. And there's nothing worse than a bunch of religious people. Nothing is more oppressive to me than to be in a crowd of a bunch of religious people who think they have impressed God by their morality and their good deeds. And as we're going to see and have seen for the past several weeks in John chapter 5, the same was true in the life of Christ. He was continually being attacked by the religious crowd. It was the immoral crowd, the tax collectors, the drunkards, the prostitutes, the thieves, the criminal element. They knew they were lost. They knew they had nothing in them to gain anything from God. And they were the ones who understood their need for grace exclusivity of grace. And they had no problem. You don't see Jesus confronting the immoral crowd. He's going to parties with them. He's eating with them. He's drinking with them, having a glass of wine with them, such that the Pharisees came along and charged him with being a glutton and a drunkard because he would relax with the immoral crowd. That doesn't mean he relaxed his standards or that he approved their immorality. But it was that loose crowd that understood their need for grace. And they weren't caught up with all of the pride and arrogance that was part of the religious crowd. And nothing keeps you away from the cross more than pride and arrogance, thinking that you can do it all. That's why basic to grace orientation in the spiritual life is humility. Humility means I can do nothing. You have to recognize who you are in the plan and purpose of God. So point number six, to think you can help God is nothing but pure, raw arrogance. God doesn't need our help. We need His help. That's the grace policy of the plan of God. Man's failure, therefore, cannot cancel the integrity of God. And man's weakness does not negate the power of God. Lack of integrity in your life cannot override the integrity of God. Failure on your part cannot cancel your eternal salvation. What happens is we become more impressed with our failures and the failures of others than with the integrity of God. When we are impressed with who and what God is, then we begin to realize there is nothing we can do to lose our salvation because there is nothing we could do to gain our salvation. Point number seven, and I think this is where we stopped last week. When you understand the dynamics and complexities of what God must do to save even one unbeliever, then you realize the complexities of salvation. 
Now this is where we need to examine the problem of man again. This is the problem. When Adam ate the fruit, and notice, the act of sin that plunged the human race into depravity was not some heinous sin. When you ask most people to list the worst sins they can think of, eating fruit doesn't make the list. Yet with Adam, it was eating fruit because the issue wasn't the degree of sinfulness. The issue was obedience, submission to the will and plan of God. And at the instant that Adam sinned, that decision had consequences that reverberated throughout not only his own life, his own biological structure and spiritual structure, but throughout all of nature. It had zoological ramifications. It had uh, meteorological ramifications. It affected everything in the environment. It affected everything on the planet, including himself, primarily himself in terms of spiritual death, which culminated eventually in physical death. We can break down the complexities of the sin problem thus. The sin barrier, brick number one, is the guilt of sin. Isaiah 64, 6 and Romans 3:23. all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all guilty. The Puritans said it well in their primer for children. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. Every one of us are guilty. Second brick is the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death, spiritual death culminating in physical death and all other categories of death. There was no death until Adam ate the fruit. Third brick, physical birth. We are born physically alive, but spiritually dead. We are born physically alive, but because we are spiritually dead, we will eventually die physically, and that problem has to be resolved. The fourth brick has to do with the character of God. All the, uh, our, no, it has to do with our relative righteousness, that God's standard is absolute righteousness. Remember, what the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God executes. So what the righteousness of God condemns, the justice, or what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God must condemn. So because we lack the perfect righteousness of God, God must condemn us. He has to solve that problem. All of these have to, are, are manward related. The fifth brick is God related. The character of God. Because He is perfect righteousness, he cannot have a relationship with us. God, God can have relationship only with that which has perfect righteousness. Righteousness must love and can love only righteousness that is in a personal sense. And then the sixth brick is our position in Adam, for in Adam all die. And so we see the complexity of the problem, that when you understand the complexities of the barrier here and that all of that is involved with sin, you can see that man cannot do something through ritual or morality that can reverse this devastating process. How can baptism alone, or baptism in, in conjunction with faith, reverse this process? This process is not something that man can take care of. Man erected the barrier, but man is impotent in removing the, any brick of the barrier. Man can't even chip away at it. Man must rely totally upon God to remove the barrier, and God removes the barrier through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The, guilt, the sin problem of guilt of sin was solved through redemption. Christ paid the penalty, and that's what the word means. It means to pay a penalty to redeem us from the slave market of sin, and that applies to, can apply to every single individual. He died for all, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, and 15. 
The penalty of sin is resolved through the doctrine of expiation. The physical birth is resolved through regeneration, where we are born again spiritually and we receive the human spirit, and God imputes to that human spirit eternal life. The relative righteousness problem is resolved because God imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and then declares us just. So that is resolved through the doctrines of imputation and justification. The character of God is resolved through the doctrine of propitiation, which means his justice and his righteousness are satisfied by the death of Christ on the cross. And then finally, our position in Adam is replaced by a new position in Jesus Christ under the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We are instantly and immediately identified with Jesus Christ through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that's covering a lot of doctrines very rapidly, but the purpose is simply to let you realize the complexities of salvation. It is not something that just happened uh, overnight. It's not some simple little process. The application of it is simple. It is faith alone in Christ alone. But the work that God had to perform in order to save us is indeed complex and has many, many different facets. And so for us to think that somehow we can do something to gain it or do something to reverse it is to think very simply and superficially about sin and about salvation. Romans 5, 1 through 3 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, that is, reconciliation, through whom also we have obtained our access by means of faith into this grace in which we stand. Consequently, let us continue because of confidence in the glory of God. So all of this is ours because of what? God did for us at the moment of salvation. Point number eight. Jesus Christ prays continuously for us to be kept in salvation. Jesus Christ is our high priest. He uttered the model high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. That is, in truth, the Lord's Prayer, not the prayer he, the model prayer He gave the disciples back in Matthew. Uh, this is the Lord's Prayer. This is His prayer for the church before he went to the cross, John 17:11 through 16, Jesus prayed, And I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father, keep them in thy name. So Jesus is praying that God would keep us from falling or losing salvation. Keep them in thy name, the name which thou hast given me, that they may be one even as we are. Notice that our unity in Christ is positional, It is not experiential. It is based upon what happens at the moment of salvation. It is not based upon the fact that Christians have to go out and hold hands, compromise doctrine, and sing, we are all one in the Spirit, and have a rosy glow afterwards. That's not what the Bible means by unity in the body of Christ. We acquire unity in the body of Christ at the moment of salvation. And in the Scriptures, if we're talking about an experiential unity, the Scripture says it is a unity in faith That is doctrine. It is not a unity based upon the fact that we all just want to get together and have a big hug session. And that's what's going on in too many churches today. They all say, well, let's not let doctrine stand in our way. And that is is directly against everything that Scripture said. The Scripture is completely against ecumenicalism. Because ecumenicalism reduces doctrine to its lowest common denominator, which is usually against doctrine and against everything that the Scripture teaches. So Jesus said, prays that we may be one, that is, through our positional unity in Christ, even as we are. John 17, 12. 
While I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name, which thou hast given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that's Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Judas was never saved. John seventeen thirteen. But now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So Jesus continuously prays to the Father as part of his role as our high priest to keep us in salvation. And All the conditions given in Scripture, God always answers his prayer. So to say that you lose your salvation would say that Jesus' high priestly prayer is ineffective, and that's blasphemy. Point number nine. Christ is the head of the body. That's the imagery of of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. All believers are part of the body of Christ and He is our head. To say that you can lose your salvation is to say that you can be severed from the body of Christ. And that, again, violates the metaphor and violates the picture of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 21. Point number 10. The character of God means that God keeps His promises. God is faithful. He is immutable. He never changes. When God says something and makes a promise, He always keeps His word. If God were to go back on His word, that would mean that God had changed and He was no longer God. We have to remember that God is immutable. That means He is unchangeable. He is eternal. That means He is always the same. In application to Christ, the Scripture says the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is infinite, and God is perfect righteousness. Therefore, He cannot cancel or take back something once He has given it, no matter how bad, wicked, or naughty you are. God is still bound by His Word and not by your immoderate behavior. Remember, Christ paid the penalty for every sin, so once that penalty is applied... Nothing the believer can do is unpaid for. Whenever you commit some sin, that sin was paid for on the cross completely. For you to say you lose your salvation means that you commit some act that Christ really didn't pay for. And that not only impugns the cross, but it denies the basic character of God, which we have seen already. This takes us to a very important passage that some people often wonder about. and So let's turn there. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 11 through 13. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 11 to 13. Now it's very possibly, this is set according to poetry, it's very possible this was a, an early hymn that was sung in the church. We're not sure. What, whatever its source, whatever its origin, because it's quoted here under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, we know that it is uh, inerrant and infallible. But it is often a pa- passage that is misunderstood and therefore misapplied by different people. Begins, let's read the whole thing through. For if we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. Now that's a first class condition, meaning if and we did die with Him. That's Romans chapter 6. That at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, we are identified with the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We call this doctrine 
a retroactive positional truth. It is part of what takes place with the baptism of God the Holy Spirit. Let's put this overhead up here on the on the board so we can see this. At the moment of salvation, through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, God the Son uses the Holy Spirit to identify us with Himself and identify us with His death, burial, and resurrection. This is part of our positional reality in Jesus Christ. So, if we died with Him, and we have, we shall live, shall also live with Him. That is, eternal life. You put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ at the moment of salvation, you were given eternal life. Verse 12, If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. Now, this is different. If we died with Him, is dealing with phase one salvation. What happens when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ? But endurance is an issue in spiritual growth. Perseverance. We've studied this on Wednesday night in James. Endurance has to do with persistence, continuously studying God's Word, growing towards spiritual maturity, uh, learning God's Word, applying it, metabolizing it, assimilating it into our thinking under the filling of God the Holy Spirit, and continuously applying it in the midst of tests and adversities. If we endure... We shall also reign with Him. This is a promise, as we have seen under the doctrine of inheritance and rewards, that there are two classes of believers. Class number one is believers who are successful. These are believers that, in the analogy of those who run the race and run it well, are winners. They acquire the winner's wreath of righteousness. Other wreaths are the the metaphor that Paul uses to describe the rewards that we receive. Second class of believers, class two, are those who are failures in the spiritual life. And these are the ones that are losers. They do not lose their spiritual life. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, there's a description of the Bema seat of Jesus Christ. And at the Bema Seat of Jesus Christ, which takes place after the rapture, Jesus Christ comes in the air sometime in the future. We don't know when. It could happen at any moment. Jesus Christ comes in the air, and those who are dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up to be with them in the air, and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. And this, just after this, when the Antichrist is revealed and makes his covenant with Israel... There will, that initiates the last seven years of Daniel's, uh, called Daniel's 70th week, each day representing a year, also called the time of Jacob's trouble or the time of the devil's temper tantrum. We have seven years. During that seven years, what's taking place in heaven is what's called the Bema seat in Greek, B-E-M-A, which is the judgment seat of Christ. This is different from the great white throne judgment. At the Bema seat of Christ... The issue is the believer's obedience to divine mandates. The issue is not whether or not you're going to go to heaven. The issue is what's your new position in heaven going to be. And at the, the image that, that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 3 is that each believer will have his life evaluated. And so all of your works and deeds, 
Not your sins. Remember, they're paid for by Christ on the cross, so sin's no longer an issue. The issue is your deeds, your works. What have you done in terms of your spiritual life? So that's all piled up on a big bonfire, and and the Lord lights a match to that, as it were, and it's all burned. Burning is a process of purification. And so the issue is, just as in the smelting of of, uh, uh, metals, in order to burn off the impurities, you have to burn off all the impurities in order to get to what is of value, that the wood, hay, and straw, every believer is going to produce a certain amount of wood, wood, hay, and straw, and a certain amount of gold, hopefully, some will have none, gold, silver, and precious stones. Now, the wood, hay, and straw represents all that we did on the basis of morality and human good. So that's what we'll put HG there for human good. The gold, silver, and precious stones is what we produce under the filling of God the Holy Spirit in obedience to His Word, and that is DG, divine good. After the purification fire is, is, is set, and when that's finished, we're left with a certain amount of gold, silver, and precious stones, and the wood, hay, and straw has all burned up. Now, on the basis of the amount of divine good we have in our life, God rewards us. And at the conclusion of that passage, it says, but some will have all burned up, because it's all human good, and they will enter heaven yet as through fire. In other words, they enter heaven minus rewards and minus the, minus the inheritance of, of being a joint heir with Christ. Romans chapter 8 says that we are... It's two things. It's poorly punctuated in many Bibles. Remember, there's no punctuation in the Greek. In, in Romans 8, it says we're heirs of God, and this is category 1. This is the idea. Heir of God means that you have, you're going to have a resurrection body, you're going to have eternal life, and you're going to have a number of other blessings that all believers in, will have throughout all eternity. But there are going to be some differences, and those differences are based on rewards and inheritance. This is a joint heir with Christ. Romans 8 says that you will be an heir of God and joint heirs of Christ. Those who suffer with Him will be joint heirs with Christ. So that's where endurance comes in. Endurance in the suffering. Those who endure in the suffering will rule and reign with Christ, and they're the ones who are joint heirs with Christ. The losers are just simply heirs of God. They are not both. They only have one category of inheritance and not two. So that's what this is referring to. If we endure, that is, in the midst of suffering... If we continue to come to Bible class, learn God's Word, assimilate, apply it under the filling of God the Holy Spirit, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will deny us. Now, there's, you've got to notice the parallelism here. If we deny Him, the endurance is in relation to suffering. If we deny Him in that suffering, He will deny us. This is what takes place when, when the loser believer denies God and tries to solve his problems on the basis of human viewpoint, the result is that you are rejected by God and rejected at the judgment seat of Christ. This is not a loss of salvation as is clear from verse 13. If we are faithless, if we, it's still talking about we as believers, all through here, all through this section, the we is believers. It's not a word that includes unbelievers. If we are faithless, that is, the believer who's the loser at salvation, who's a failure, I mean, loser in terms of the spiritual life, loser at the judgment seat of Christ, 
He is the one who, who is a failure in the spiritual life. If we are faithless, what does it say? If we are faithless, He remains faithful. He keeps us. He keeps us in His hand. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. And He has promised that He will keep us and hold us in His hand, even if we lose our faith and become failures in the spiritual life. So what we see is that the character of God means that He keeps His promises even when we don't keep our word. Even when we are failures, God is never a failure. He is always faithful and His integrity cannot be canceled. Point number 11. All of that was point number 10. The character of God means that God keeps His promises. Point number 11. The Holy Spirit seals us at the moment of redemption which is our guarantee for protection and salvation. In the ancient world, there would, whenever they would seal a document, a sign of ownership, they would put wax on it and then they would take their ring and they would press that wax, that soft wax, and leave the impression on it. And that would be a sign or signature of ownership. And that's the metaphor here that the Holy Spirit is our seal of redemption. Ephesians 1.13 says, In whom, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom when you believed you were also sealed by means of the Holy Spirit. So this is the signature guarantee of God the Holy Spirit that we are His and owned by God. Now in Texas we'd call that branding. Once you have the brand of God on you, you can't lose it. You are God's forever. Ephesians 4.30 Stop grieving the Holy Spirit by whom you have been sealed when? to the day of redemption. That is, when you finally realize salvation at phase three, absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. So the sealing of redemption, the sealing of the Holy Spirit is a sign of our eternal security. Point number 12, just a little exegetical point from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which reads, For by grace you have been saved in the past, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, when you come to this exegetically, it's very important. This is why you have to know a little Greek and Hebrew to get to the, what the Scripture is saying. It says, for by grace you have been saved. That's how it reads in the New American Standard. Now, in the Greek, you have a main verb is a me, E-I-M-I, which is a present active indicative. And it means... It is the to be verb, is or are. For, and you would think it would be translated for by grace you are. But the participle for saved is a perfect participle from sozo. S-O-Z-O. Now, this is what important factor of Greek grammar. Whenever you have a main verb linked with a participle, here you have a perfect participle. That's called a periphrastic construction. And the reason they did that was to intensify the participle. And whenever you combine a present tense main verb with a perfect participle, the meaning is that of a per like a perfect verb. And a perfect verb means the emphasis of the present reality of a past act. 
So it is accurately translated in the New American Standard, for by grace you have been saved in the past with results that go on. So it's emphasizing the present reality of their salvation on the basis of a past act, a past completed act. It's not a process. That's the point. It's not a process. It's something that happens once with results that go on and cannot be changed. And we derive that from the grammar and the words used in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Point number 13. I want to wrap this up. We've got two more points. Point number 13. Our position in Christ protects us. Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our position in Christ protects us. And once we come to understand all that is ours by virtue of our position in Christ, we realize that we cannot lose it. And finally, point 14, retroactive positional truth means that at the moment of salvation, through the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, which is known as the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, we are identified with Jesus Christ. The old man, Romans 6 says, is crucified with Christ. To say that you lose your salvation is to say that that old man is made alive again and the new man is made dead. That the whole process of retroactive positional truth, our identification with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is reversed. That not only makes no sense, it contradicts Scripture and it is blasphemy. That identification with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is irreversible. We can't go back. The issue is understanding faith. Faith is non-meritorious. All the merit is in the work of Christ. He is the one who paid the penalty. He died for us as our substitute. He is the one who is the basis for our salvation. God the Father gives us salvation as a free gift and it cannot be lost because it is never dependent upon us. It's not even dependent upon us being smart enough to exercise faith. For anybody can exercise faith and everybody exercises faith at one level or another. Faith in and of itself is not special. Faith has its, it becomes special only because of the object which is the saving work of Christ. It is Christ who saves. It is not faith that saves. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is simply the means. It is not the cause of our salvation. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank You for the opportunity we've had this morning to study these things, to once again become impressed with Your power and all that goes into our salvation with the extent of Your grace and with all that You have done for us on the cross. The complexities of our problems are such that there's nothing that man could do to ever solve them. And you did everything at the cross, and all we have to do is simply accept it. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is without hope and without eternal life, unsure of their salvation, that they would take the opportunity now to just pray silently to you, Father, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. That is all that is necessary. That is all that is required in Scripture. And the Scripture says that If we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we will have eternal life. We pray that we could remember the things that we have studied today and that they would uh, increase, strengthen our confidence in you and motivate us and spur us on in our spiritual growth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.